there were never strawberries like the ones we had that salty afternoon. I don't want to talk about it. Why am I in the restaurant in Allah? Voice recognition technology in Allah in Scotland. Hello and welcome to The Scottishist, where we take a running jump and a dive into the gorgeously pure, peaty, murky, fresh and salty waters that are the icons of Scottish culture. I am your host, Laura MacDonald, and in every episode of The Scottishist, I take a magnifying glass to the symbols of Scottish life and identity. How have these things risen to the top to become something that everyone understands to be Scottish? Today, I am popping the top on our other national drink, Bar's Iron Brew. We're going to get into the history of Iron Brew, as well as brush the dust off some of the myths surrounding this icon of Scottish food culture. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure, Iron Brew is a soda drink, what we in Scotland would call a fizzy juice. Now, a quick aside, because for non-Scots, this might be the most controversial thing that I'm going to say in this episode – But in Scotland, every cold beverage, other than water, milk or alcohol, is called juice. Cordial, soda, freshly squeezed, yuzu and lime, still or bubbly, it's all juice here. And here is where I am, so that's what I'm going to call it. Just consider yourselves lucky that I'm not originally from Glasgow, otherwise I'd be calling it ginger for the whole episode and then you'd be really confused. Anyway, back to the script. Iron Brew is a slightly shocking rusty orange colour and it is made with a proprietary blend of carbonated water, sugar, 32 flavourings including caffeine, ammonium ferric citrate and quinine. There are sweeteners and there are colourants. It contains a source of phenylalanine, sunset yellow and ponso 4R, which, so the bottle says, may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. I could not possibly comment on that. However, I should say that I'm not going to let my kid try it until she's much older. Flavour-wise, I've heard some first-timers describe it as tasting kind of like bubblegum or maybe cream soda, but that's not it. Because as well as being hella sweet, it's also fiery, vaguely fruity and just a tad bitter. It can't really be compared to anything else, because it's very much its own thing. It's not trying to mimic any flavour you might find in nature. It's iron brew flavour. And it's phenomenal. It's available in several plastic bottle and tin can formats, but for the elevated iron brew experience, you have to get yourself the traditional one litre glass bottle. On this point, I will be taking no opposition. If you can find yourself an old-timey Scot to reminisce about collecting the empty bottles and returning them to the shop and being allowed to keep the returns money, it was 20 pence a bottle when I was a kid, then you will have reached peak brew. So now we've covered our bases as to what Iron Brew is, where did it come from? Who makes it? Who drinks it? Did Donald Trump really ban it? Who is the dude flexing on the logo? And how on earth did that blue and orange legend become a shorthand for Scottishness that crosses the usual divides? To get to the bottom of these questions, I found myself leaning heavily on the work of David Leishman, who actually wrote a book about the history of Iron Brew and the themes of national identity surrounding it. So, I just thought I'd ring him up for an after. Go on, David, introduce yourself. My name is David Leishman, and I work in Grenoble University here in France. Um, I lecture in mainly in business English, and my research has been mainly about Scottish identity, 
first in terms of how Scottish identity was expressed through uh, contemporary literature. And then I got more interested in trying to link that to the sort of classes I teach, which are more in the business side. And I wanted to look more at questions of branding and marketing and how that plays into national identity as well. So Iron Brew, where did it come from then? And steady yourself, because I know this might come as a shock, but it's not from around here. Iron Brew, you know, has nothing Scottish about it, except for the fact that it's now been produced in Scotland for such a long period by bars. But you have all of this mysticism about original and best and the the question of origins. And when I started looking into Iron Brew, um, I did so convinced that Iron Brew was Scottish and, you know, obviously so. And that, that was what interested me from a a kind of cultural perspective. And it was only when I started digging into it that I realised just how little actually was, was Scottish in origin. And that that's what I think is interesting in terms of the kind of the, the process of rewriting and forgetting. It's just that all, all of the international roots of Iron Brew are just completely gone now. And it has it has become this manifest symbol of Scotland, whereas, yeah, it's, it's, it's an American drink invented by German chemists. What's that now? American roots and German chemists? Let's get into it. The first record of a drink called Iron Brew, spelled with all its letters, I should point out, is from an 1891 trade advert for the Jamaica Aerated Water Company. Marketed as genuine and original McNish Iron Brew. Now, if you're feeling like that might be a bit Scottish, at least Scottish adjacent, what with the McNish name and old father McNish having once been a merchant in Glasgow, then I am sorry to let you down, it is a bit of a red herring. You see, there was a fashion in the late 1800s for flavoured aerated mineral waters. Basically, your friendly local diner, drugstore or small-scale bottler would operate a soda fountain and sell sparkling waters flavoured with a selection of pre-prepared essences or syrups, and they would purchase these from a specialised chemical company. Honestly, it's this exact same setup that you see in modern restaurants and bars where soft drinks are made up to order from a syrup mixed with soda water from a machine or a soda gun. The principle is exactly the same, but the Victorians would be selling it by the bottle rather than by the glass. Well, back in 1891, McNish Sons of Jamaica ordered their iron brew syrup from the Mass and Waldstein Chemicals Company of New York who, in their patent application for the brand name Iron Brew, claimed to have originated the flavour in 1889. Not only that, but they marketed it as the ideal American drink, which seems to make the origin of Iron Brew a bit sort of American. Oofty. Now, just as an aside, I am really tickled by the Mass and Wallstein Iron Brew bottle label, which promotes itself as a non-alcoholic life renewer, capable of regulating the blood and nervous system, relieving headaches, nausea, dyspepsia, sleeplessness, and general debility. They were tapping into the Victorian fad for cure-all mineral waters, but to my ear, it sounds rather like the modern-day belief that iron brew can cure a hangover. Which I kind of can in my experience. And I'm not alone. In the 1970s, Billy Connolly had a whole poem in his set dedicated to the Bars family. I'd like to dedicate this wee poem to the makers of iron brew... Mr. and Mrs. Barr <laughs> and the wee wens for saving my life on so many Sunday mornings and it's called the afternoon after the morning after the night before 
Anyway, back on the trail of Iron Brew. The first appearance of the name Iron Brew in the UK is in 1898 in a trade booklet for Stevenson and Howell, a company selling flavouring ingredients, colours and essences based in Southwark in London. Small-scale bottling companies across the UK would order flavours and syrups from Stevenson and Howell to add to their drinks. And two of those companies were the bars, that is Robert Barr of Glasgow and A.G. Barr of Falkirk. They were a father and son who ran separate bottling companies that, although they did operate with a high degree of overlap, they did apparently mix their own formula for Iron Brew. There certainly doesn't seem to be any evidence of them buying the Iron Brew flavour essence from Stevenson and Howell, although bars did purchase some of the flavour and colour ingredients from the London company, as well as bottle labels and marketing materials. So if Iron Brew was originally just the name of a generic juice flavour created in America and arriving in Scotland via London, how did it become solely associated with one brand, AG Bar, as the flagship non-alcoholic flavour for the whole country? Well, let's face it, not being born in Scotland doesn't mean that you can't become great here. And that's just what Iron Brew did, with the help of a little bit of creative myth-making and another hundred years or so of absolute marketing genius. And let's start there, because the origin of Bar's Iron Brew is shrouded in myth. The origin story, according to their own website, is fantastic. This is actually a direct quote. In 1901... Steelworkers working on the rebuilding of Glasgow Central Station were drinking too much beer to quench their thirst. So a local soft drinks manufacturer named A.G. Barr brought to them a tonic-like drink made with caffeine and sugar that could get the workers through a hard day's graft. Iron Brew was born and a long history of it getting Scots through tough situations began. But it's it's complete rubbish. And it popped up again on AG Barr's page as part of their origin story again. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they know it's rubbish. Such a good story, though. So sometimes in the, the retelling of that story, it's that the steel workers were next door in the Beardsmore plant and they needed something because the, the industrial process was so hot that, you know, they were all dying of thirst. But other times at Central Station. But no, both are complete complete myths. There's also a strange story that Iron Brew used to be Strachan's Brew. Uh, and I find that kind of fascinating. It's 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 something that you see repeated in all of these uh, newspaper articles, 10 things you didn't know about Iron Brew. Iron Brew used to be called Strachan's Brew. I, I, I have no idea where that comes from. I think it's complete myths as well. Um, I have never found any single statement of that explaining why that would be the case. And everything I've found points to a completely different origin. Barr's own version of their origin story for Iron Brew is so pervasive that it appears in newspaper articles, journals, it's on Wikipedia and in blog posts. And it has been repeated endlessly into almost fact. The 1901 launch date was introduced as an accepted fact in around about the 1930s. And it seems like we have just sort of run with it ever since. The centenary of Iron Brew was celebrated in 2001 and 1901 was the name chosen for the full sugar authentic recipe edition of Iron Brew that was launched in 2019. According to Bars, the 1901 date corresponds to an entry in a syrup room mixing book, which has the details for the Bars recipe for Iron Brew. Which seems fair enough, until you get a poke. Ten things that you can lift off the AG Bar website. Exactly. 
and then you get into the question of how companies curate their own histories and they, they become the kind of curators of their own origin stories. And even when they know things aren't quite true, they can still continue to reaffirm them. And because they're the legitimate origin of their own commercial story, obviously they're going to be the, the legitimate source for any journalist, lazy or otherwise, to go to to, to find the important information. But even simple things like, you know, the fact that the 1901 origin date for Iron Brew, you know, it's manifestly untrue, given that in the Falkirk archive, there's a, the first ad for Iron Brew printed on a 1900 cookbook, which is, you know, and I've checked the date more than once, and it's, it was published for a church fete in the middle of 1900. So it, it definitely wasn't 1901 that the first Iron Brew was, was sold by bars. Mr. Barr himself went away and did some research um, and, and presented that to me and, and said that he'd, he'd gone and looking through the archives and found this 1899 mention in a, an invoice for one million bottle labels for Iron Brew dated from 1899. And that was the earliest I think he'd found in his archive. And um, he suggested that if they were ordering a million bottle labels in 1899, then that meant that the drink was already a big seller. It wasn't something they would have done initially suggesting that it had already been on sale and proved a success, possibly pushing that date back to 1898 for its introduction by Barnes. That is that is the mystery. If if Iron Brew's original recipe, 32 ingredient Iron Brew, was first mixed in 1901, but we know that it was being sold at least a couple of years earlier, what were they selling in that introductory period? Let's spend a little bit longer with the million bottle labels that Barnes ordered in 1899 because I smell marketing hijinks on the horizon. The design of these labels, featuring a strong man posing with various items of weightlifting equipment, holding aloft his glass of iron brew and the legend an invigorating and refreshing tonic beverage, brackets, non-alcoholic, close brackets. The strong man image was patented by Stevenson and Howell in 1898. But who is this heavy-lifting influencer? Well... The figure in the image is widely understood to be Adam Brown, a famous Highland Games athlete from Shots. It's not clear when this idea started circulating or when it became understood as fact within Barr's firm itself. But like the 1901 date, it's one of those facts that appears again and again wherever you search for the history of Iron Brew. Perhaps this is where the Scottish grounding of Iron Brew really begins. Because bars run with the idea that their label shows a famous Scottish sporting bod, a local hero, despite the fact that the image was trademarked to Stevenson and Howell and the name of the model, if there was one, is not recorded. In 1904, bars did, however, get two famous Scottish athletes to be brand ambassadors. Donald Dinney, a strong man and champion of many Highland Games sports, he was known at the time as the world's greatest athlete, and at some point, I am definitely going to do an episode on him because it is a cracking story. The other was Alexander Munro. He was a champion caber tosser of the world and he went on to win silver in the 1912 Olympics in the tug of war. Now, I am entirely only mentioning this because I want to mention how much I want tug of war to be reintroduced to the Olympics. Yes, that sounds awesome. Anyway, Alex Munro and Donald Dinney were quoted in newspaper advertisements and retail signage proclaiming the effectiveness of iron brew in training and recovery. Bards were clearly keen to tap into the late Victorian fitness fad. 
and its accompanying gap in the market for improving and sustaining non-alcoholic drinks. And they were keen that the sporting heroes they sponsored were distinctly Scottish men performing in the distinctly Scottish sports of the Highland Games. So, these early days of Bar's Iron Brew are shrouded in myth. They don't know their history that well. I mean, I'm not saying that, saying, oh, I know more than them. But I think there, there, are, there are instances where it was clear that they've heard the same story so often that they've believed their own sort of mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when I found that the Iron Brew Strongman was, was an English company that had trademarked it, that's in the National Archives, and I, I was showing Robin Barr in that, you know, in the boardroom and he's looking at the picture going yeah that's that's the same one and we went down to the wee mini museum and he's holding up the picture looking at their original sort of show card design and he's looking up going this is the same one this is and and you know clearly he was discovering this as well so I thought that was kind of fascinating or he would say well my dad always told me this and it's yeah but apparently it's not true (laughs) you know so the stories get garbled and they get lost and they get forgotten and the companies then believe basically the version of it that suits them. Yeah, suits them, yeah. If we're being entirely fair to bars here, we could point out that their job is making and selling soft drinks. They're not historians and are unlikely to be making ethical judgments when it comes to presenting their corporate story. Accurate history is a lot less vital to their business than shifting units of brew. Ultimately, I mean, I spent a lot of time looking to the origin story of Iron Brew and tracing that back to England and to 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 the US. But ultimately, I mean, any any product in the industrial age is going to have complex and complicated supply chains, and it's necessarily going to be from more than one place. And to that extent, I quite like the the idea of confronting origin stories and confronting the diversity and the complexity of origin stories. Origin stories which postulate that, you know, to be from here, you need to be purely from here. And that needs to be the case, you know, over several generations. That's always a very truncated and, and simplistic story. And if and when you look at a, a brand like Iron Brew, you realise that for brands, it's the same thing. You know, the brand didn't originate here. The brand originated here in terms of the, the bars, companies, but the product itself had wildly, you know, varied and external origins. It's become Scottish over time, and I think it's useful always to kind of resituate that. Now, so far we've been talking about Iron Brew, spelled I-R-O-N-B-R-E-W. But Bars now sells Iron Brew, I-R-N-B-R-U. So, when and why did Iron Brew lose a quarter of its letters? Well, the spelling changed in the late 1940s. The government had restricted the number of flavours of fizzy drinks that could be produced during the Second World War, and Iron Brew did not make the cut. So production was on hold from 1940 to 1947, when the wartime restrictions were lifted. Bars went back into production with a new brand name, Iron Brew. Bars explained the name change as their way of getting the brand to conform to the 1946 Act of Legislation, in which food brand names had to be literally true as a way of clamping down on some of the weirder and more wonderful claims that brands might make of their products. So the story goes that while Iron Brew contains a source of iron, that's the ammonium ferric citrate, and I really hope that you're keeping notes because there will be a quiz at the end, it was not brewed, so the name had to be changed. However, the 1946 Act doesn't regulate the word brew, 
and other manufacturers of iron brews, although there weren't many left after so many years out of production, continued to make it and spell it the old way. Now, it is possible that there was a misunderstanding about the meaning of the legislation that prompted the change, but generally, I think it much more likely that bars just wanted a name they could trademark. They wanted a brand, an original product, not a generic flavour. So, Iron Brew swapped out some of its letters, got a trademark, and a legend was born. But after spending the war years out of production, how did bars even have a market to launch into? Remember that marketing genius thing I mentioned earlier? That. Before the war, Bars had created a brand new ambassador in the shape of a comic strip character called Babru. For a long time, they had this very long-running Babru campaign, which ran from 1938 to 1970. And Babru was another Kipling-inspired character in many ways, because Basically, Babru was borrowed, if not outright plagiarised, from a film adaptation of a Kipling story starring the Indian child actor Sabu. That was in 1937, sorry. In 1938, uh, Bars simply duplicated the movie poster as Babru and used a shot from the movie as, you know, the little Indian boy on an elephant as their new brand mascot. In the first ads, Babru was definitely this very, very, um, in today's view, stereotypical, racist, xenophobic serving boy who would be there with a silver platter holding up Iron Brew to serve to little white children. And he's he's Indian, but at the same time, he looks um, more sort of Black African. Uh, he has a turban with sort of wild earrings. He's, he's just this kind of cultural mix of exoticism. He went on to have his own comic strip uh, in 1939, and that lasted, you know, almost uh, 30 years, 31 years or so. Yeah, I don't think that's aged particularly well. I mean, Babru initially, he, at least in the comic strip, he was the the kind of wily uh, main character, although a few years later, he then gets supplanted into kind of more of the role of sidekick by Sandy, the Scottish boy, and Sandy is the the character who explains the world to him and teaches him all there is to know about Scotland and how to how to act in society and that kind of thing. And, and Babru is kind of relegated to this more secondary character. So yeah, that that hasn't aged particularly well. Now, as David said, the character is illustrated just as offensively as you might imagine a nineteen thirties cartoon strip exotic character to be with overly contrasted black and white features and some non-specifically exotic clothing. Kind of looks a little bit like Mickey Mouse with a turban, and if you didn't know that Mickey Mouse's design is based on some racist blackface imagery, then I've got some reading for you in the show notes. Babru's comic strip adventures were published in the local press and generally showed Babru going to great lengths to source some iron brew. Crucially, during the war years when iron brew was out of production, Bars continued to publish the comic strip. They kept their brand in everyone's minds, they created storylines that looked forward to the end of the war and the inevitable return of Iron Brew to the shelves. It's also during this period that the comic strips took on a specifically Scottish tone. With the introduction of Babru's pal Sandy, a young lad in a kilt and tam-o'-shanter bonnet who would occasionally hold forth on some great Scottish subject, such as the history of the kilt or the joys of the bagpipes. So when it was time to launch the newly branded Iron Brew, Bars had an audience waiting for it, because they had spent years marketing a product 
that didn't exist. The comic strip adverts of Babru and Sandy ran in Scottish papers for decades and were finally, thankfully, retired in the 1970s. At which point, a very striking brand slogan appeared. Bar's Iron Brew, made in Scotland from girders. Bar's marketing is the stuff of legend here. Some campaigns have been more controversial than others, but for the most part, their advertising, both in print and on screen, is memorable and usually very funny. And somehow, it always seems to land the tone right in the sweet spot to appeal to a Scottish audience. So how do they do it? Being in the right place at the right time, I think I, I really love the, the, the Girders campaign, which ran from about 1977 to about 1994. And I think it's extremely interesting that that happened at a time of Thatcherism, of Scottish deindustrialization. It happened at a time when there's this kind of Glasgow literary revival with people like Alistair Gray and James Kelman through the 1980s, where there was this kind of rediscovery of this kind of urban, gritty Scottish voice. And I think Einbrew, in many ways, just kind of lucked into that whole um, cultural period. But it had great cultural relevance, I think, to a Scotland which felt sort of in many ways, it felt under the heel of a conservative government that it hadn't chosen. And it was a period before devolution, and it was a period of not yet a kind of huge, massive shift towards kind of independence or, or, or pro-devolution, but definitely, you know, very strong grumblings about the, a democratic deficit. And Scotland felt in many ways ill-considered. And so the whole Made in Scotland from Girders gave you that sense of an industrial identity that was being very proudly brandished. And it gave you a sense of, a sort of pride in origins of, of being very different and not British. Um, and, and I think that had really, really strong relevance for, for sort of contemporary Scotland. And also, I thought it was very interesting that that was, you know, Scotland for a long time has often been considered to be very identifiable on the world stage as being very culturally specific. But that cultural specificity is often very much in the kind of Brigadoon, Highlandry, Tartan kilts and, and, and all the rest of it, which doesn't really have any great relevance to anyone in central Scotland. Whereas the Made in Scotland from Girders ads, they really kind of took you back to a much more urban contemporary identity that I think many people could identify much more strongly in in Scotland. And could feel, yeah, you know, I've always known I've been Scottish and this this helps me reaffirm in, in some much more popular, everyday, relevant sense. Yeah, that this, yeah, I, I, I know I'm not part of the UK in the same way that if I lived in the south of England, I would be part of the UK. I'm, I'm something different. And I think that really helped play on that sense of, of a Scottish specificity. So I really like the, the Girders campaign. I think it was very interesting in that sense. Then again, it's it, you know I think it's it's tempting to see that as some kind of genius marketing on behalf of bars just tapping into that Scottish um, idea. Uh, you know, it was an English ad ad agency that came up with a strapline. It's it's you know it's good marketing, but it's it's not some kind of homegrown genius. The the ads from about the mid nineties onwards into the early two thousands with those orange billboards and the very sort of in your face you know, cheeky maverick ads, they were very much a kind of UK-wide phenomenon. And that was very much their attempt at penetrating a wider British market. 
in Scotland, I think they were seen as being part of that, and this is in their terms, maverick Scottish identity. So I think in Scotland, they could mean something else uh, to a Scottish consumer that they didn't necessarily mean to a UK consumer. And in that respect, I think we, we maybe read into the ads what we want to see. They generated a lot of complaints, those ads. Oh, yeah. But that, I think they were quite happy with that. Um, no, but I think that I think that was the whole point. If they, I mean, if they if they shocked your granny, then that was probably the aim. <laughs> Seeing as I'm recording this in December, I'm also going to highlight the snowman advertising campaigns. They are absolutely gorgeous and again very funny. If you haven't seen them, I've linked to them in YouTube in the show notes. They are a glorious pastiche of the Raymond Briggs film, The Snowman complete with piano arpeggios and choir boy vocals. In the Iron Brew version, the kid and his flying snowman friend, whilst walking in the air past some icons of the Scottish skyscape, like the Falkirk Wheel, the Fourth Bridge and Ale and Donnan, get into an argument about sharing a can of Iron Brew. Eventually, the snowman steals the can and drops the kid into a pile of snow in George Square. There was a sequel released a few years later where the fight and flight continues and eventually the can of Iron Brew is pinched by a kilted Santa Claus. As well as being very cute and very funny, like almost all of their ads, every scene in these adverts is grounded in the Scottish landscape. The first of the Snowman Christmas adverts was released in 2006 and it is broadcast every year. Now, let's face it, even John Lewis can't write an advert so good that they show it every Christmas for 17 years. Another one that I really like is the um, If television ad, which um, came out in, I think it was 2008. If you can bounce in six-inch heels all night and still walk home in your bare feet. It was a time where they had abandoned the Girders campaign uh, in the mid-90s. They adopted a more kind of UK-wide marketing you had all of those big orange billboards that were meant to be, you know, cheekier. But going for more the kind of youth market across the UK, they, they'd figured that it was important to try and penetrate the English market much more strongly. And therefore, you had this lessening of, of a Scottish content, a Scottish appeal in, in much of their advertising. If you can keep two passions bonding bright and see there's still some romance and defeat. And then from 2006, you saw one or two ads that started to kind of play on the Scottish themes a little bit more strongly. But... You know, television advertising is expensive, so they would tend to focus on uh, a main ad which would have UK-wide appeal. They wouldn't tend to have a, a, a television ad that was specifically for Scotland because it's a smaller market, etc. And apparently the story goes that they had produced a, a television ad for the summer before. The summer before had been um, extremely bad weather, and they figured that, well, they could reuse the same ad the next summer in 2008. They didn't read to, need to kind of reshoot a television ad for the summer. So they had a marketing budget left over that they could use for a specific Scottish content. If you can hit a foreign beach without a tan or brave the howling sleet in just a shirt. And with the Leith Agency, uh, so an Edinburgh-based uh, advertising agency, they, they very specifically wanted to kind of shoot an ad that, in their words, like, put the hairs up the back of every neck in Scotland and really had this kind of nation-defining identity defining ad and so very overtly seeking to kind of play this nationalist uh, or national um, chord but i think they did it in a, in, in a very smart and astute way if you know you're easily the better man when side by side with suits and just a skirt if you can party in the summer rain with kamikaze midges in the mud 
or grit your teeth and put up with the pain of seeing in the new year in the scud. If you can wait and wait for 1p change, then proudly give the lot to charity. And know for certain it's not strange to call your lunch dinner and your dinner tea. If you can handle folk who call you jock, then you'll have really earned your iron brew. You'll thank your mum for keeping you in stock. And what is more, you'll feel phenomenal too. Um, it's also funny that they, they, they chose If, you know, which is a poem by Rudyard Kipling, which is a, this kind of imperial poem about the, you know, the, the British or English identity who's able to stay calm in the face of adversity. And they deliberately chose that as the kind of counterpoint for this Scottish ad, which would be the kind of the, in their own words, the piss take of this English defining poem. And they would base their ad around some kind of hymn to the Scottish spirit, which is all about not taking yourself too seriously and, you know, admitting your own failures. And, and, it's, and it's a much more humble kind of self-referential um, statement of identity. And I quite like the fact that the national identity that you see in, in Iron Brew much of the time, at least in recent years, has that quite self-deprecating element to it. It's never very bombastic nationalism saying, oh, we're the greatest and, and everybody else is rubbish. It's always saying, yeah, we're, we're a wee bit rubbish, but we quite like ourselves nonetheless. And what about the elephant in the room? I mean, the, the, the really tough question and, you know, the, the, the difficult question is in a country with extremely poor health and extreme poverty and you know it's not a country which is reputed to have the the, the healthiest eating habits and things like that and um, to what extent do we want to have as our emblem of a national culture a drink which is mainly sugar and sugar and chemicals um that that's clearly the the tricky question and it's the the tricky question that bars to some degree to their credit have tried to grapple with when they reduced the sugar content across the board kind of unilaterally in 2018 when they 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 cut by half the the sugar content of iron brew much to this displeasure of of many you know the, the iron brew super fans were extremely upset about that this was in reaction to a sugar tax that was implemented in the uk in 2018 whereby drinks with higher sugar contents were taxed at a higher rate the idea being that this would guide consumers away from the more sugary options. So to some degree, they've tried to grapple with that question of um, a cultural icon, which is inherently unhealthy. And they're perhaps doing that not out of a sense of national duty, but simply because that reflects the, you know, the, the trends in the market towards low sugar and, and healthier drinks. But at least they, they sort of confronted that head on. They could have taken perhaps a much more cynical approach to that. Uh, and they've, they've taken a lot of flack for that from the boycott iron brew contingent but um i, I do think that was quite a, a coherent and to some degrees sort of altruistic approach to, to actually doing something about the problem on the health front i'd also argue that bars have indulged their marketing genius by associating themselves or by directly sponsoring sporting events such as the commonwealth games now i don't know if anybody else feels like this but i find it a little bit uncomfortable when brands for blatantly unhealthy products get a bit of sport washing on the go like this. But for bars, it was a chance to indulge in a bit of nation-building rhetoric. And as usual, they hit the tone pretty perfectly. And at other times, I think they've just been very, very astute at reading the room, as you said. Um, I, I, the, the iron in your blood 
ads for the the 2014 Commonwealth Games. They they were a, a big sponsor of the event, and you had these amazing kind of nation-defining ads as well, which were very national in tone in that they, they very clearly sought to define something about Scotland, about who the Scots were and what it meant oh, to be Scottish. Land. We may take more wee steps than giant leaps, but that is what makes our metal. We may reach for the stars and come up with clouds, but it is in the reaching that we find joy. Yes, and yes, yes, dream. these were their ads sort of celebrating how crap the Scots were at sports in, in their own words. And so they, they got to play on that sense of we don't take ourselves too seriously we're intensely proud but at the same time we know that we're not the greatest nation on earth and i think that was a very astute piece of marketing and i think it you know i think it rightly so was was seen with you know quite a lot of fondness and and uh it had a bit of emotional power to it um because it presented this quite positive image of a, of a scotland that is aware of who it is although we walk in the molehills of achievement our best of skilled mountains. And when the sporting gods do shine on our pasty faces, Martians need earplugs. Why? Because we are the underdog with the heart of a lion. Why? Because we are born to support and we have iron in our blood. And we say, aye, no bad to that. Now, as well as cracking advertising campaigns, bars have also got a good eye for a bit of merch. It's got its own tartan, a screaming orange background with broad blue and narrow white and black check. You certainly wouldn't be missed if you wore that to your next Kaylee. At the time of writing, the Iron Brew merch mavens have outdone themselves in terms of branded Christmas wear and released a set of Christmas feasting trousers, which take the Iron Brew orange and blue in a festive pattern and build them into a kind of pyjama bottom maternity trouser hybrid with a broad stretchy waistband. And of course, when I went to check the listing, they are already out of stock. They really do look comfy though, and I bet you a fiver that next Christmas, everyone will be copying. Now, I've only actually owned one piece of Iron Brew merch personally, but how I loved it. It was a mug that I bought during the 2014 Commonwealth Games. It had a picture of the fourth bridge on the outside, and it held a good half pint of tea. It was a delight, and the day I dropped it and smashed it to pieces was a sad one indeed. I've still not found its equal for style, weight and tea-holding capabilities. While I am being a little bit frivolous here, let's get to the bigger, oranger question. Did Donald Trump really ban Iron Brew? As a 2018 headline put it. Well, kinda. Ish. It was reported in 2018 that Iron Brew is not for sale at Trump Turnberry Golf Resort in Ayrshire. Because according to the manager at the time, it was too risky as it might stain the new carpets. And while, yes, Iron Brew Orange is a bugger of a stain to remove, my wee Scottish mammy experience tells me that that's not really an argument you can make in a venue that also sells red wine and black coffee. However, Donald Trump's business dealings in Scotland had made him very unpopular here long before he went for the presidency. So... Was this just a great opportunity for the local media to put Iron Brew up as an opposition to another orange character who's a bit of an acquired taste? Sure. The main thing to remember is that Scotland is one of the few countries in the world where a local juice product outsells Coca-Cola. Which is the explanation behind the other strapline, Scotland's other national drink. But it's also a point of pride here. 
In Scotland, we like an underdog story. And a local pal outshining an American celebrity is very much our cup of tea. Iron Brew is a testament to their success in many ways as a Scottish business. And they've, they've been phenomenally successful in perhaps in, in linking their drink to pre-existing ideas about what Scotland is or what Scottish people are. And they have been just very adept at perhaps consciously or unconsciously just tapping into those very rich veins uh, in terms of narrative, in terms of stories about strength and resilience and uh, being a little bit different and being the underdog. And at various points throughout the history of Iron Brew, you know, they've, they've managed to pull sort of tap into those sorts of stories. And one of the things that I noticed was that sometimes it's kind of accidental. Sometimes it's only, in, you know, maybe with with hindsight that we that, that we realise they've got it right. Some things that they did maybe kind of coincidentally or accidentally take on meaning later on, or maybe they mean different things to different people. But in Scotland, they're, they're, they're viewed as being particularly pertinent for a story about who we are. There seems to be a coherence to all of it as well, which is interesting, even even though it's you know it's vastly different periods. It's a, a, a very long story over most of the 20th century into the 21st century. But there seems to be a kind of coherent narrative thread as well, which is also why their marketing perhaps has such um, such traction still today, because it doesn't seem to be just a juxtaposition of lots of different conflicting stories that are all cobbled together as some kind of you know, crazy, made-up, spurious, invented story. It seems to be a kind of a, a coherent story from beginning to end. And that's partly due to some of the ways that we've forgotten other strands of the, the story about Iron Brew over time. And it's also because Iron Brew has become a success in its own right. And so Iron Brew today is a sort of Scottish success story, and it is very much a story about Scottish authenticity today. And people drink Iron Brew because it means something about being Scottish today. And it means something about being Scottish today because so many people drink Iron Brew. So it's a kind of, you know, self-reinforcing argument. Thank you so much to David Leishman for letting me pick his brains on all things Iron Brew. I have linked to some articles and his book, which are available online. If you want to check out my reading list for the series, then you can follow the link in the notes to the Scottishists reading list on bookshop.org. Bookshop.org supports independent bookshops and you should check them out for your seasonal book gifting needs. Before you go, please hit the subscribe button so that you do not miss the next episode of The Scottishist. And if you could also share this episode with your favourite people, that is the best way that you can support indie podcasting such as this. Just... Lend me some ears this Christmas. That is all I need. And maybe a review. That would also be awesome. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok and hopefully one of these days I will learn how they work. If you have any questions that you would like answered about the icons of Scottish culture, then you can get involved. We have a Patreon and for £3 a month you can enjoy exclusive content, members can submit their questions and together we can get right down to the nuts and bolts of the facts, fictions and feelings that we have for the Scottishist stuff. Thank you to John Boy for the theme music. I hope you all have an amazing festive season. Cheers my dears. Voice recognition technology in the left in Scotland.